talking about the Australian band The Church. They're one of the biggest bands that Australia has ever put out. Uh, one of the most popular as well. Um, an interesting band. Uh, the lead singer and bass player Steve Kilby. It's kind of his band at this point. Um, they've been around since 1980. Um, most Americans are familiar with the, um, the song Under the Milky Way, right? That came out in like '88, and it was a you know top uh, top 40 hit in America. The album did well. Uh, the video was popular. There was a follow-up song called "Reptile" that did okay, yeah. and uh, most people remember that. But the interesting thing about the church is they were around for you know seven eight years before that, and then they've been they never left. They're, they're still very big in Australia and in Europe. And uh, they're very interesting. I, I just find them a very interesting band. Yeah, because they started in 98. No, they started in 1980. I mean, 1980, yeah. Yeah. So 1980 to now, they've been together for how long? 40, 42 years, man. Okay. And they're, they're, in, they're in the uh, the equivalent of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame of Australia. Okay. And just a shout out to Australia. I mean, this is the third show of, of four that we've done in a row about Australian bands, and just a shout-out to the fans there. I know they like us. We've done well well in Australia. And these guys had a few band members. They didn't really have oh, yeah. that many changes, but they had, like, a couple, of guys, a couple of guys left, came back, and, yeah. you know, uh, there was infighting like there is in every band we talk about. Uh, you know, Steve Kilby is uh, – an interesting guy. He's he, he he's always been outspoken about his his drug use. Uh, you know, he, he he had a bad heroin addiction at one point, uh, but he he always was outspoken as far as the drug use being part of the songwriting. You know, and not too many people would admit that, and it, it is for for some bands. You know, but uh, I you know I got a lot of notes here, man. Let's let's just dive in with this. It's a great story. Yeah, and Mike, you know what it is? When you, you guys are together for 42 years. There's going to be band changes and people die. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Nah, there's going to be fighting. There's going to be band members leaving, coming back. Things, And that's that's what happened with this band. You know, like so many others we've talked about. 
Christ. So let's talk about the Earth Day of Kevin Hart. Yeah, well, that was the name of the first album, okay? But they, you know, f formed out of uh, out of Sydney, Australia, in 1980. Initially, they were kind of associated with New Wave because it was 1980, New Wave at the time. Uh, sometimes it's referred to indie rock or or psychedelia, uh, but later, really, it, it kind of falls in what they call a dream pop sound. Um, I just call it good music. It's you know, I mean, it has a psychedelic sound to it but uh he's everything from a rock to uh yeah they even they even went uh you know some stuff is almost electronica really they got interested in that kind of music you know but now singer songwriter and bass player steve kilby he first played with the guitarist peter cops in a glam rock band called baby grand in australia in the mid-70s now after each had left that band to play in other bands, Kilby played in a band called Tactics, and Cops played in a band called Limousine. Okay? Now, they met again in Sydney in March of 1980. They hadn't seen each other for a while. Um, and this is when they got the original three-piece of the, the church together. Okay? Um, it consisted of Kilby, bass and singing, Cops on guitar and a guy named Nick Ward on drums. And Nick had played with Cops before in that band, Limousine. The name was originally supposed to be, Kilby's idea of the name of the band was going to be called The Church of Man. Okay, but they decided to kind of shorten it down to just the church. Yeah, and much better, you know. It does. It does. Church of Man sounds like a cult or something, you know what yeah. I mean? <laughs> now, another month later, uh, after a gig as a three-piece, guitarist Marty Wilson Piper, who was originally from Liverpool, England, he met Steve Kilby after this gig, and, and they talked. And that same night, he actually joined the band. So they had a, a second guitarist. They're now a four-piece. And uh, that guitar sound of Marty Wilson Piper and Cops, okay, really cemented. And that, that's the sound of the church. Yeah, okay. that's, that's, that's the classic sound. It would change over the years, but that's really what everybody remembers. Now, a four-song demo would be recorded in Kilby's bedroom studio and sent through contacts from his and Cop's old glam band, Baby Grand, to the Australian branch of the Beatles Publishing Company. The Beatles had a publishing company called ATV Northern Songs. There was a song called Chrome Injury, and it kind of attracted the attention of, uh, of a manager named Chris Gilby, okay, who signed the band to his recently you know, formed company in association with EMI. Uh, EMI reopened their old Parlophone label. We, we, we talked about Parlophone a few times over the years. Uh, Chris Gilby would go to rehearsals and kind of help shape their sound okay uh he brought in he, he actually bought some equipment like he bought wilson piper a 12-string rickenbacker guitar wow. and uh he gave cops an echolet tape delay to use and that would give them that psychedelic birdsy almost guitar twangy i mean when you think of a 12-string rickenbacker you think of of the birds okay 
and uh, that's that's the kind of the sound they were they were going for, at least the guitar sound. Let me ask you a real question. Um, where did yeah. he have the money? Did he have money? Is that why he was able to buy these things? I guess. I mean, he had the backing of of Parlophone, I believe. So you know, the, he must have had something. Yeah, he must have had some backing to to be able to do that. Yeah. Uh, now the bands, uh, the first batch of demos that they did, only Chrome Injury would go on to be recorded for release. The band put out a debut album called Of Skins and Heart, like you mentioned, and that was recorded in late 1980 and produced by Gilby and mixed by Bob Clearmountain, who was an American who notably worked with Bruce Springsteen, Toto, the Rolling Stones, and later on, Brian Adams. Okay, he worked a lot with Brian Adams. This guy worked with some top guys. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, um, seven of the nine tracks were written by bass player Steve Kilby. Don't mix Gilby and Kilby. Kilby is Kilby's the singer and the bass player. And two were co-written with, with other people. The first single called She Never Said was released in November 1980, but it never charted. At the beginning of 1981, Nick Ward on drums was replaced by Richard Plug. Plug's arrival established a lot of stability in the band and really cemented their sound finally. Uh, the second single called The Unguarded Moment, which was co-written by Kilby and Michelle Parker, was issued alongside the album itself in March of 1981 in Australia only. So you would get, once that single came out, they, they gave it to you with the album. That's what it appears like. Okay. Now, The Unguarded Moment became an Australian top 40 hit, reaching number 22. Um, and the debut album of Skins and Heart went gold, also peaking at number 22 on the album charts. And this was only released in Australia. This is not like worldwide release. Right. This is just, this is just in Australia. Okay. The first recordings with Plug were released as a five-track double seven-inch EP called Too Fast For You in July of 1981. Uh, it included the first collectively written track for the band, a song called Sisters. They wrote that all together. Another track called Tear It All Away, later released as a separate single, showed uh, a development towards more elaborate guitar work, Okay, which would, again, they, they, it would, it, their sound is really starting to come together. They kind of invoked images of like 1960s psychedelic bands. They wore tight jeans. They wore paisley shirts. Yeah. Uh, and of course, they had very birdsy sounding guitar work. The commercial success of, of, uh, of Skins and Heart allowed French label Carrere and U.S. label Capital, Capital Records to both release the album in 1982. So a little while later, Capital picks them up in the States. And the uh, Carrera label in French in France picks them up for the European release. That's now, true. yeah, yeah. Now they what they did is for those both of these releases, the album uh, became called The Church. They renamed it The Church. Yeah. Okay. And uh, as most people call their first album after themselves, you know, they also included tracks from Too Fast for You. So you had the EP, and then you had the uh, original debut album together. So you're it, ma they made it a bit of 
bigger album then, you know? I think I think there's a couple of tracks that are different, maybe one or two are left off, but it's a lo- it's a longer record. Yeah. yeah. And then again, vinyl. Okay, we're talking nineteen eighty two. Yeah. So um they also included tracks, like I said, for Too Fast for You, and they used some of that EP's artwork as the cover for this album. It was a different album cover than the Australian release. It peaked at number seven in New Zealand and number thirteen in Sweden. So Plug actually was was incorrectly uh, credited yeah. as the only drummer because Nick Ward played on the original album. Yeah. Okay. So that created a little, I think, some legal problems at that point. Uh, Capitol Records released an edited version of the single, The Unguarded Moment, without the band's approval. And this would be a you know, the beginning of a, of a long history of this band having problems with their record labels. Yeah. You know, if you're going to make a single and then you're going to cut it out and shorten it, you you should tell the band, I would think. Okay. Yeah. But they didn't do that. Now, the band's second album was called The Blurred Crusade, and that was issued in March of 1982. Uh, it was it was both produced and mixed by Bob Clearmountain again. They they brought him back. Yeah. Sonically and stylistically, it was a lot more complex than the debut album, uh, but it definitely still showed a lot of the 1960s influence that they had. Uh, it peaked at number ten, and its first single called "Almost with You" resulted in a second top thirty single, uh, peaking at number twenty one in Australia. So they're doing very well in Australia. The church went on a second national tour of Australia and became, uh, and because of the European success now, because they did well in Sweden, they decided to tour Europe in October of 82. However, Capitol Records refused to release the Blurred Crusade in America and demanded that the band write more radio-friendly music like and this is even a laugh. They suggested that they sound like the Little River Band. <laughs> now, I know they were on the same label, but and they were both from Australia, but you couldn't get more opposite than the Little River Band and, and the church, okay? So they were kind of livid when they heard that. They were like, oh, God, what do they want us to do, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so after another recording session, uh, five new songs were offered to Capitol. But the label was still unimpressed and dropped them. Okay, so now they have no American distribution. Um, the songs that were recorded for that EP that, that Capital dropped ended up being released in Australia as an EP called Sing Songs. And it went to the top 100 in December of 1982. That's good. Yeah, meanwhile, band manager Michael Chug arranged a UK tour for the first time with the hugely popular Duran Duran. They were Duran Duran. (laughs) However, after eight shows with them, they pulled pulled themselves from the tour. They felt that the Duran Duran crowd didn't appreciate them too much. They were giving them, I don't know if they got booed or, or what, but, you know, at that point, Duran Duran were like, the audience was what, screaming 14 year olds? Okay, I don't, I don't think they wanted to see the church. So 
The band ended up instead doing a Scandinavian tour in 82, uh, as well as a few other places in Europe. Um, both of their albums would get released to critical acclaim at that point in Europe. Yeah, uh, Europeans did like them. In May of 83, the band released their third album called Seance, and it was co-produced by the church themselves and engineer John B. Uh, he he had worked with uh, the Hoodoo Gurus, who we're going to talk about next week, yeah. uh, two weeks, I should say, and uh, also ended up working with the Divinals, too, another famous Australian band. Um, that peaked at number 18, Seance, okay? Uh, it's considered a more darker album. I actually, this is when I personally became aware of the band, uh, 1983. And I remember a friend of mine had the record as an import. This guy was a record maniac. He bought, spent all his money on albums, which I was pretty much right behind him at that point in 83. But I remember he was like, Mike, come over, check out this, this new Australian band. Yeah. And uh, it was called Seance, and I listened to it. I thought it was great. Um, I didn't have anything else to compare it to. It was the only thing I ever heard, but it's a great album. Now, it's, like I said, considered kind of darker than the first two. Uh, it used some keyboards and synthesizers. They had never really used that too much before. Some some tracks had string effects and things like that. Uh, they accompanied The accompanying tour of that album included a guest keyboardist uh, from Melbourne named Dean Wallace. Um, now, when mixing the Seance album, the band used engineer Nick Lone, and he had worked with Midnight Oil, okay, and other Australian bands. And in his mixing, he favored what was called a gated reverb drum sound. Now, in the business, we all know what that is, but if you hear it, it's that typical 80s drum machine sound, sounds like a yeah. Oh, you know, kind of. It's you know, it's not a drum machine. They didn't use. They had a drummer, okay. But it's just when the drum machine, the drummer sounds like a drum machine. That's that's that gated reverb sound. It was very popular in the eighties, and and uh, for me, when I hear that in music, it it sounds dated today. But that's just my opinion. Some people love that sound. It was very popular, and it gives this staccato sound on the snare drum. And the church didn't like that. They didn't want to sound like that. Okay. But he tried to remix it and it really only lightened the sound. Okay. Um, I don't think it's one of those albums that, that sounds extremely dated for that reason. There's other, there's other bands that just their whole careers, they use that sound. Yeah. But uh, on this, this band, it was really only this album and it wasn't too heavy. Um, but the first single was called electric lash. And it featured that gated reverb effect kind of prominently. Um, now, Seance didn't sell well, okay? It sold poorly internationally um, because, like, nobody could understand it. It was very dark and cryptic kind of kind of lyric-wise, and people didn't really know that where they were coming from with that album. I think it's a great record, okay? Uh I remember a few weeks ago we had Roxanne Fontana. She she had covered a song on that for her latest album, yeah. and gotten Richard Plug to you know play on it and everything, and that's great. Um, but uh, back then they didn't know what to make of it. But ironically, Cream Magazine 
in the United States like this album. And Cream was very edgy. You know, 1982, 83, you know, Cream was the shit. Right? They, they were, everybody was reading, Lest, well, Lester Bangs was gone already by that point, but other people that were involved with the critics, the critics of that magazine were, were great, you know. Um, there was a sound called, uh, there was a song called Now I Wonder Why and a song called Fly that Cream Magazine pointed out as being exceptional. And they said Seance is one of the greatest albums in the world right now. Yes. That got people in America, you know, kind of interested in them. Um, once again, uh, Seance, like the last two records, was dominated by Steve Kilby's songwriting. Steve was the main, the main, really the main songwriter and you know, singer, bass player of the band. Um, only one band composition made the record, uh, the experimental song Travel by Thought. Uh, the track 10,000 Miles was a Kilby, Wilson Piper co-written song uh, that would get rejected for the label, by the, uh, by the label, for the, for the album. It wouldn't make the album. Uh, Kilby was getting sick and tired, pretty much, of the record label's interference. At yeah. this uh, 10,000 Miles, even though uh, it didn't make the album, it, it became a staple of their live show after that and would eventually be included on an upcoming EP. One thing about the church is in between albums, they like to put out EPs very for 40 years, pretty much. Um, now, despite all these difficulties with Seance, it yielded two minor hits, Electric Lash and It's No Reason. The album also stayed in the British independent charts for several months. And so, it. yeah, uh, the singles did well. It got some good press in the States. Internationally, it didn't sell well, but can't have everything. Okay, they, they, they were going somewhere, even though they had a little bit more success early on to start. But the group had de developed this, like, devoted fan base. Uh, the fans would dress like them in tight black pants and paisley shirts. And, you know, the, the catchy melodies of the band, the solid live performances, uh, they really developed this, this, it wasn't really, I wouldn't quite say underground because they were sort of mainstream, but very low-key, strong following. Um, they toured Australia with, with, uh, after Sounds came out. They toured New Zealand. Um, meanwhile, Capitol Records, who had dropped them, released their first album in Canada, okay, and it went top 20. Yeah. All right. Now, the Sing Songs EP also was released as an import in Canada in 1983, and it was like the best-selling import of the year, something like yeah. that. Yep, yep. Now, um, deciding against a full album, the church released two EPs in 1984. Uh, an EP called Remote Luxury came out in March, yep. and an EP called Persia came out in August, but only in Australia and New Zealand. Both EPs reached the top 50 in Australia. Again, almost all tracks were written by Steve Kilby, but compared to Seance, they, they weren't so dark anymore, okay, and cryptic. Now, guest keyboardists Davey Ray Moore and Craig Hooper would join to complement their trademark guitar sound uh, for the live shows, okay, and on the, and on the EPs. 
So these guys have taken, so they were taking album EPs, album EP, and now they just decided let's just take a two EP and get the album. And, and they were pretty good. They were in the top 50 in Australia, right? Yeah, yeah. At this point, uh, they're still they're still riding high. They're a very popular band. They signed to Warner Brother Records in the U.S. Um, internationally, the two EPs were repackaged as a single album called Remote Luxury. Uh, its U.S. release was their first record there since the debut album came out on Capitol. Although the second album, The Blurred Crusade and Seance, did well as imports even in the States. Uh, Due to an increase in U.S. interest in the band, they would leave Michael Chubb's management, who was based out of Australia, and sign with Malibu management run by John Lee in America. Uh, they were really trying to break the American market. They toured the U.S. in October and November, and while they drew audiences in New York and L.A., everywhere else, they bombed. Okay, They had a hard time selling tickets in the middle, which, you know, for, for bands that are pretty much doing well only on the import charts in the States, it's, it's hard to get the middle of the country interested. Uh, it was a financial disaster, actually, for them. Um, yeah, yeah. Now, the church kind of sort of drifted for a year after that. And in 1985, Steve Kilby released a solo single called This Asphalt Eden, and it was released on EMI's Parlophone label. And unfortunately, some uncertainty started to set in with the band. And at this point, I'd just like to make a little uh, commercial break and pay the bills. We'll be back in a minute. Okay, after drifting for a year, um, the church reconvened at Studios th uh, 300 in Australia in mid-1985, uh, excuse me, Studios 30, not 300, uh, to work on their next album called Heyday. And it was going to be with British producer Peter Walsh, who worked with uh, Simple Minds and Peter Gabriel, a lot of British acts. Uh, their first single in almost two years called Already Yesterday appeared in October and just made the top 100. Heyday followed in November. That album came out in November and brought new stylistic elements with the addition of real strings and horns. And it created a very warm and kind of organic sound for the church. Uh, Kilby still wrote the lyrics, but musically the band was largely 
writing the music together now yeah. and practice that they would they would continue thereafter more often released in australia and new zealand and europe and the u.s the album was warmly received and critically acclaimed a tour started in april of 86 with concerts at home and abroad scheduled unexpectedly marty wilson piper quit the church after an increase of band tensions on july 10th of 86 the band would perform as a three-piece in Hamburg, Germany. And then after a week, Wilson Piper returned to the band and agreed, they, you know, he had to sit down with Kilby and they agreed that, you know, the, the future releases would, would contain much more group efforts. I think he felt he, he, his con contributions were not going anywhere. Yeah. It's like George Harrison with the Beatles. It, yeah, I guess. Yeah, good point. Good analogy. Yeah. Now, despite this charged atmosphere and, and favorable press, EMI dropped the band because in Australia, the singles weren't selling too well. Okay. They decided to record abroad at this point, and they signed a four-record deal with the U.S. label Ariston Records. And that was in 1987. Um, for the Australian releases, they signed to Mushroom Records. Remember Mushroom? We were talking about the Saints. Yeah. Okay. That's a that's a popular Australian label. Recording sessions in Los Angeles began with producers Wadi Wachtel and Greg Ladani, both of whom had worked with uh, Bob Dylan, The Stones, Warren Zevon, Fleetwood Mac. I mean, these guys were heavy hitters. Uh, the whole American experience going out to L.A. and recording deeply affected Steve Kilby. Uh, particularly, he, he didn't feel out of place. He felt like a fish out of water. Um, there was a lot of personality clashes between the producers and the band um, over everything from guitar sounds to song structures, and they were fighting about everything. I think Wachtel didn't like their work ethic. Uh, you know, Kilby was asked at one point to take vocal lessons, which I think he resisted, but he did, and later on admitted that it was it was valuable. Um, the album that came out of all this, Rob, is the album Starfish. All right, this was the hit. Okay, Starfish was was the one. Okay, and uh, tracks like North, South, East, West. Uh, Lost, Reptile, Destination. These are all, if you listen to these songs, kind of what they're about, they, there's kind of an angst in the music. And it was really based on the tensions of these sessions. And they didn't like living in Los Angeles to do them. Yeah. So four weeks, I wouldn't want to live in L.A. for four weeks either. But four weeks of grueling sessions captured the band's core sound. And they wanted to create a live sound as opposed to the layered produced sound of their last album, Heyday. Yeah. They were very pleased with the results of this record, uh, despite the infighting and all that. Uh, but the public reception to Starfish was very unexpected. All right, It, it was released in April of 88, and it, they, the album found its way into the mainstream, marking a new worldwide commercial peak for the church. Yeah. Uh, the album reached number 11 in Australia and top 50 in the U.S. The album was gold in America by 1992. It took four years to go gold. 
also, and this is the single, the single Under the Milky Way, reached number 24 on the Hot 100 charts in America. It reached number 22 in Australia and went top 100 in Canada. It peaked at number two on the Billboard mainstream rock tracks. And Under the Milky Way was, was written by Steve Kilby and his then-girlfriend, Karen Jansen, who would be his wife and mother of his, of his kids later on. Uh, she was in a band called Pink Champagne, and they collaborated to write this song. Um, the video was in heavy rotation on MTV. I think MTV really helped this song. Yeah. Okay. 88 was still a time when, when MTV had a lot of pull. If, if a song was in heavy rotation, it generally did well in the charts. Um, and, I mean, that's how I got introduced to to them. I mean, I knew Seance. I think I had heard Heyday here and there. And then, and then this came out, and I was like, okay, I remember these guys, but they sound a little different. I kind of like I kind of like this new sound, and uh, you know the the, uh, the the second single called Reptile, I liked even more. I liked the guitar on that, and that charted on the Australian Top 100s in August of that year, and Billboard mainstream charts as well. Uh, there's a great video for that too, like kind of a live video. Um, EMI responded with a double live double excuse me double compilation album. Uh, called Hindsight 1980 through 87, which contained tracks from previous albums and B-sides. You notice how how labels drop them, and then they have a hit next, and then they got to re-release their stuff. Capital did it, EMI did it. You know, they they seem to be like one step ahead. You know, yeah. you know but something funny about that. They probably learned to be a better band with the discipline and not liking LA. They probably got a little closer together, and they. Became a better band, and the voice and the voice awesome. and everything, you know. Yeah, yeah. Something, something went right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, you know, they would they would try to recreate this again. You'll you'll see. Now, um, the church promoted Starfish with a nine month tour before they hit the studio for a follow up. Now, Arista, since they already had a top fifty album on their hands, were pressuring the band to recreate this. Now, the band started negotiating on the side with John Paul Jones from Led Zeppelin to produce. Uh, But management and the the label kind of shot it down, which I I think it would be very interesting, a collaboration between the church and John Paul Jones. But it it didn't happen. Uh, And in an attempt to duplicate Starfish, they went back to L.A. to work once again with Waddy Wachtel this time. Okay. Now, the Starfish sessions were tense, but these sessions were straight-up volatile. Okay. <laughs> the shirts were very outspoken. Now, look, now think about it. They, they, they just had a hit, and now they're working back with the same guy who's going to kind of try to tell them what to do. The, the, band was, the band was very strong-willed. Steve Kilby's a very strong-willed guy, and like I said at the beginning of the show, he was very outspoken about use of certain drugs in the songwriting process. And that, you know, was a problem when it became to recording and things like that. Might have slowed things down. Maybe I'm not sure exactly of, of how it affected it. But because of the studio tensions and arguments, 
drummer Richard Plug began to get deeper into his drug habit. And in the process, he kind of got alienated with Steve Kilby, who had his own drug habit going on, okay? But he was excru- he got increasingly excluded from the process. And eventually he was replaced for the sessions with a drum machine. And he only plays on three tracks on this album, okay? And he would leave the band after these sessions. This album was called Gold Afternoon Fix. So you know what you know where they were at, all right? <laughs> now, while quite different from its predecessor, Starfish, uh, the predecessor Starfish, this album reached number 12 in Australia. This album had more of like an ambient kind of atmospheric sound than Starfish. It had a lot of acoustic guitars. It had a lot of piano. It had a lot of keyboard. Um, on some tracks, the music was was punctuated by what sounded like clanging metal or rustling wind noises, uh, sharp kind of industrial sound noises. Um, it's an interesting album. It's not a bad record. I, I actually hadn't heard it in a long time, and researching for the show, I was listening to it. And uh, it's a good record. It's a good follow-up, but it, 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 you know, it didn't do as well. Yeah. Uh, now, the album was heavily promoted by Arista, and the band went on tour and hired ex-Patty Smith Group drummer J.D. Doggerty. Okay? Now, the album spawned the minor hit Metropolis. There was a video for that as well, which got something like. Uh, but the follow-up song, You're Still Beautiful, didn't chart at all, failed to chart. So ultimately, the album was less commercial than Starfish. And later on, Kilby would say the album was kind of hashed together and lousy. But they do manage to keep some tracks from it in their set list even to this day. So it's, it, I think it was maybe more popular with the hardcore fans than it was with the band, which is why they do that. Um, now, soon after the tour, the band returned to their former haunts in Sydney. Now, with less commercial expectations at this point for a new album, they returned to Studio 301 to work on the next record. Okay, They brought in British producer Gavin Milk McKillop, who worked with Toad the Wet Sprocket, okay, and others to, yeah, to supervise these sessions. Now, the, ba- the band began a framework for this new record amid an increase in heroin use by Steve Kilby and opium use by other members of the band. Uh, Doherty, the new drummer, however, brought in a, like a fresh kind of jazzy drumming sound to the band. He was a different kind of drummer than Plug. The new record called Priest Equals Aura contained 14 songs, many over six minutes long, and clocked in altogether at 65 minutes. Long record. Now, with with song concepts that kind of derive from cryptic one-working, you know, titles, one-word titles, um, and that was an idea that, that Marty Wilson Piper had, most of the lyrics lean toward the abstract and esoteric kind of themes. Uh, Kilby, when asked, declined to give any meanings to the songs. Uh, sonically, the music was layered very well, uh, courtesy of numerous guitar overdubs and, and McKillop's rich production. The interplay between Culp's and, and Wilson Piper 
dominated the album. So it really had that church sound. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the way these two guys play off each other are great. Um, especially on traps like Ripple, Kings, and the epic and aptly titled Chaos. And that was kind of like reflected on where Kilby was at in his life at that point. Okay. And the, the songs all have one more titles. That was very interesting that they did that. Now, upon its release in March of 1992, Priest Equal Aura got mixed reviews. Okay. It peaked in Australia at number 30. The band went on an Australian-only tour at that point as Kilby was preparing for the birth of his twin daughters with Karen Jansen. Peter Copps decided to leave the band at this point, and his departure was based on that the band really had earned nothing on that short Australian tour, uh, despite sold-out shows. Okay, um, They owed a lot of money, and they weren't really making anything from these shows. Yeah. He also had a long-standing complaint of being shut out of the creative process, which I think most band members felt. Um, the band's lack of major success and increasing tensions with Kilby and others also caused the guitarist to leave. Now, despite its mixed reception at the time, Priest Equals Aura is considered today as a creative high point for the band. Uh, in Kilby's 2014 autobiography, something quite peculiar, he calls it their undisputed masterpiece. And anybody interested in what we're talking about, Check out that book. Very good book. Okay. Despite the loss of Copes, um, Arista decided to stick by the church uh, once again and back another album. So Kilby and Wilson Piper began to write new material. Um, J.D. Doherty decided to leave at this point. So this gave them a chance to experiment a lot and depart from some of the longstanding styles that they, they used. So now you've, you've broken up the... The guitar team, Copes is gone, and you've got Marty Wilson Piper and Kilby working together yeah. to, to, to songwrite. Um, the two kind of became interested in electronica music. Now, early in 1994, uh, he brought uh, two, two um, excuse me, Marty Wilson Piper brought in a childhood friend named Andy Dare Mason uh, to produce a new record for them and mix a new record. The album was mostly recorded at Sydney, Australia's Comic Hit Studios, and mixed at Comet Hit and Studio 301. Uh, new Zealand drummer Tim Powells was hired for this record, okay? Uh, he was considered temporary at the time, but uh, he's still in the band all these all these years later. Yeah, uh, came back and never left. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Uh, well, Tim Powells was... He was never in the band before, but he stayed. He was hired on like a higher gun salary. He just became a member of the band. Um, the resulting album was called Sometime Anywhere, and it was released in May of 1994, and it was generally well-received. It peaked in the top 30. It's, it's a pretty good record. Um, it's described as rich and dark and takes up kind of where Priest Equals Aura leaves off. Unfortunately, the first single, Two Places at Once, didn't chart. Uh, promotion by Arista at this point, when they, they saw the lack of commercial success, uh, promotion was minimal, and they ended up pulling financial support for an upcoming tour. So 
they dropped the church shortly after that, and and the result forced Kilby and Wilson Piper to do some shows as a duo acoustically. Okay, so it was a problem. Uh, but without a record deal, Kilby and Piper worked on some new recordings in 1995. The new drummer Tim Powell's gave some input and newly hired uh, violinist Lyndon Neal added a new style to their sound, okay? Uh, Kilby kind of was in contact and was renewing his relationship with uh, Peter Copps, and he agreed to guest on four songs on this record. Simon Polinsky of the Aboriginally, Aborigine Australian band Yafu Yindi was drafted in to co-produce, engineer, and mix the sessions. The music saw a return to the guitar-based material uh, infused with a little bit of kraut rock and art rock influence, a little bit of electronica kind of thing. Now, they made a 15-minute atmospheric piece called Magician Among the Spirits, and that dominated the sessions. It's named after a book by Harry Houdini, and it also became the new album's title. So they were experimenting with long songs. It seemed like they did that a lot through the career. Yeah. Now, this album, Magician Among the Spirits, received mixed reviews, despite the guitar rock hook of its single called Come Down. It was released in August of 1996 on the band's own label, Deep Karma Records. But due to financial constraints, they had to arrange outside distribution for the North American and European markets. This pretty much doomed the record from the beginning. But things would get worse in a short time. Um, the U.S. distributor they had went bankrupt. Okay. And that stripped them of all the North American sales of that record. So an exact figure is not really known, but it's figured to be somewhere around $250,000 in merchandise was lost with that yeah. bankrupt. Yeah. Now, and, and for a band already on shaky ground, okay, that this almost did them in. It was almost the end. The band owed a lot of money too. Okay, they had for a, a few years. Following the commercial failure of Magician Among the Spirits, the members of the church turned their attention to other projects, and Wilson Piper left Australia to collaborate with others and work on some solo material. In his absence, Steve Kilby, Tim Powells, and, and Peter Culps spent some time in the studio and quickly wrote an album under a different band name. It was called The Refo Nation. Refo, R-E-F-O, colon, Nation. Utilizing Powell's also, again, as a mixing engineer. Uh, very loose in feel, this album, but rich in atmosphere. The eccentrically titled album called Pharmacoy slash Distance dash Crunching Honchos with Echo Units. That's the name of the record, okay? It's more a greater focus on guitar-dominated songs in contrast to the more experimental, kraut-rock-influenced stuff of Magician Among the Spirits. But it wasn't called The Church, okay? It was called The Reformation. Now, group tensions within the band were still simmering, okay? 
And new drummer Tim Powell's would kind of be the middleman. He tried to diffuse most of these issues. But while Copes and Wilson Piper had already had their differences for some time, Kilby and Wilson Piper's relationship was strained by recent problems in the band. Steve Kilby declared that the end was near, and a final swan song with the working title of Au Revoir Pour Favor, Au Revoir Pour Favor, was being worked on. <laughs> was being worked on. Um, the four agreed to play a string of farewell shows, uh, mostly around Australia, and it turned out to be very successful. That the rumors of a final concert kind of abounded everywhere, but the quick success of these four shows squashed that. They weren't going to break up, okay, because they were starting to get some more success again. The results of the new recording sessions saw a return to the band's roots. Uh, the material was once again based around Copes and Wilson Piper's guitar back and forth. Also, for the first time, they would produce themselves with the sound engineer assistance of Powell's, originally given the name Bastard Universe, of, with, of which uh, Wilson Piper found to be too negative. It was then retitled to The Hologram of Allah, and then concerns about Muslim fundamentalists not liking that, they changed the title again to Hologram of Baal, B-A-L-L, the yeah. Canaanite god. How crazy okay. is that? Yeah. Now, released under a new contract with the UK, uh, independent label Cooking Vinyl, the album was distributed in the US by Thirsty Ear, and a limited edition featured a bonus disc with an 80-minute continuous instrumental song which did get the title the bastard universe the reformed and rejuvenated band went on their first fully electric tour of the u.s australia and europe in many years and a plan to release a live album called bag of bones was put into motion but was then canceled so instead a collection of cover songs was recorded in sweden uh, shedding light on the band's influences, um, arriving in August of 1999, less than a year after Hologram of Baal came out, the album A Box of Birds contained an unusual collection of songs from bands like Ultravox to Iggy Pop to The Monkees and even Neil Young. Um, the insert for the CD was designed as interchangeable with 10 separate sleeve designs created by fans. So every disc was a little bit different with the artwork. Um, I like this record. I, I actually wasn't familiar with it until I started doing the research. I didn't know this cover album existed. Uh, uh, it, it, it's great. I mean, they do, the Iggy Pop song they do is the Endless Sea, which is not a well-known Iggy Pop song. And it, it's, it's very good. Uh, they do a good version of All the Young Dudes by Martha Hoople. Uh, they do a good version of the Porpoise song by the Monkees, which was their psychedelic hit. They do a great version of that. Uh, it's just a cool record. I, I, and I'm not big on covers records, but every once in a while, I, I do like them. Um, as with uh, Hologram of Baal, a tour followed the album's release, but new drama hit the band when Steve Kilby got arrested in New York City for trying to buy heroin. <laughs> uh, the band was forced to improvise a live show in New York when Kilby failed to show up. Wilson Piper handled the vocals for that show, 
And Kilby got a night in jail in New York City and a day's community service on the subway, which was a pretty, I guess, lenient punishment, right? Um, and his comment after that was, a drug bust is something every aging rock star should have under his belt. <laughs> I like that quote. That's pretty good. In 2001, Under the Milky Way was featured in the film Donnie Darko. Do you remember that? That scene? Okay. Uh, and it kind of helped raise the interest in the band again. This was, you know, 13 years later. Yeah. Um, however, recording for the band's next album was very slow due to numerous side projects that were going on. And the fact that Kilby himself had relocated to Sweden and Wilson Piper relocated back to England and the other guys were in Australia. So the bandmates met across separate sessions, partially recorded in Sweden, New York City, and Australia. The resulting album, After Everything Now, this, released in January of 2002, saw a focus on a kind of softer elements of the band. Gentler moods prevailed with this record. Uh, only three tracks could really be considered you know, rock-sounding. Uh, the album achieved the biggest international success for the church in almost 10 years. Uh, the success of World Tour featured the band in a more subtle setting as well, with most tracks performed acoustically alongside guest pianist David Lane. Now, fans wouldn't have to wait long for a new release after this. The double-disc remix-slash-outtakes set called Parallel Universe hit stores in late 2002. It's a very unique release among the church's catalog. The first disc, subtitled Remixture, featured a remixed and reshuffled electronic version of the After Everything Now This album. The result of Tim Paul's collaboration with Sydney EDM musicians, the second disc, subtitled Mixture, compiled leftover songs from the After Everything Now This sessions. So we're getting a lot of, a lot of material at once right here, you know. Around the time that Parallel Universe was released, the church returned to the studio to record another album, eventually titled Forget Yourself. And rather than fleshing the songs out over a long, gradual process, the band decided to record a lot of one-takes and a jam-based material. The result was a very raw, live-sounding record with minimal overdubs. Also, a side note there were several tracks where band members were switching instruments for the first time. Okay, uh, Powell's played lead guitar on C-Line, uh, a song called Maya and a song called Reversal. Uh, Marty Wilson Piper would switch to drums on Maya. Now, Forget Yourself was engineered and co-produced by Nick Hard and was released in Australia in October of 2003 and in the U.S. in February of 2004, just a few months later. The band would tour extensively in the U.S., Australia, and Europe after those releases. Their prolific output continued into 2004 with the release of three ancillary albums under the guidance of manager Kevin Lane Keller, an American fan and marketing professor who had been working with the band since 2001. Started out as just a fan. The church began capitalizing on the advantages offered by the Internet and the independent music industry. You know, at this point, the internet was really coming into play with, with music. 
Bands were getting their own websites. They were releasing albums. I think David Bowie was the first to do that, if I remember right. Yeah. Oh, he, he released an album totally just on the internet. Um, first in August of that year came the entirely improvised album called Jammed, containing just two long tracks and available exclusively on the band's website. Next in October came the band's uh, came the third outtakes album called Beside Yourself, covering the Forget Yourself sessions. Finally, only six weeks later came El Momento Decidado. What does that mean? In the moment of decision, right? Yeah. Okay. In which in which the band presented old and new material uh, among acoustic setting for the Liberation Blue label. The title was a tongue-in-cheek translation of the unguarded moment, a version of which uh, they actually re-recorded. A short acoustic tour followed in late 2004, which initiated the new practice of band members switching instruments now on stage. So they would, one guy would go up play guitar, the other guy would go back play drums, that kind of thing. Now, in 2005, the church returned to full electric mode and began work on new material once again. The first release from these sessions was the Outtakes album, Back With Two Beasts, uh, released through their website as a teaser for the main album, which would follow a few months later. Back With Two Beasts has, over time, kind of become a, a, a main album of itself, uh, even though it was kind of put there just to keep, people, keep people's appetite. Uh, but it's been seen by many as fans as a legitimate album um, and at the band at its best. So, you know, it's a good record. Uh, Uninvited Like like the Clouds would be their 20th studio album, uh, and it was released to uh, mixed reviews, pretty much, in April of 2006 and was followed once again by an extensive tour. Just before its release, the band performed Under the Milky Way with the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra as part of the 2006 Commonwealth Games opening ceremony. In February 2007 came El Momento Siguiente, a second album of acoustic reinterpretations of earlier songs, plus several new compositions and a cover version of the Australian band The Triffids' classic Wide Open Road. Later that year, the band toured Australia with The Pretenders, and EMI released the double CD best of collection, Deep in the Shallows, the classic singles collection. And there they go again. Another, are they doing good? That's and, and all you can do is put out old stuff, you know? Yeah. <laughs> well, people buy that, you know, they make money. In 2006, the church had embarked on their third improv, improvised music project uh, to provide the soundtrack for a short film based on the renowned American sci-fi writer Jeff Vandermeer's novel Shriek and Afterward. The music was released in 2008 as the album Shriek excerpts from the soundtrack and was their first release on their new label, Unorthodox Records, a partnership with MGM Distribution. In February of 2009, the band began to build up to their next major studio album, with the Coffee Hounds EP. They decided to put out an EP. And it featured the original non-album composition, The Coffee Song, and a cover of the Kate Bush classic, The Hounds of Love. 
The following month, they released the Panagia EP, whose title track would also be on the upcoming album. Unorthodox Records released the album called Untitled Number 23 in Australia in March, and the U.S. label Second Motion Records released it to the rest of the world thereafter um, and recorded at Tim Pohl's Space Junk 3 Studios by engineer artist Jordan Breback, who mixed many of the tracks. A double vinyl version quickly sold out. Vinyl making the comeback. Yep. It bands 23rd album, uh, and uh, 23rd album length Australian release, I should say, of original studio material. While Kilby also alluded to the mystical significance of the number 23 in an interview with music publication Music Feeds, another major international tour followed the So Love May Find Us tour, named after a non album track from the Panagia EP. So Album after album, and they're like, work, even with Australia, they just keep doing albums. Yeah, you know, some, some bands, and, and unfortunately, not many, you know, they're able to get through all these problems and, and manage to put out stuff with small labels and their own labels, and they just were very prolific. It's amazing. I'm, I'm amazed by that. Like, they just keep yeah. going. They're still taking shit out. It's amazing. It, very few bands can, can exist like that. Yeah. They're not making that much money, you know, and, and they're still just going on. Now, yeah, now, coinciding with the tour, and again, touring is a big thing for this band, okay? Yeah. Coinciding with the tour about entitled, uh, uh, a book came out. It was entitled No Certainty Attached, Steve Kilby and the Church written by Robert Dean Lurie. It was published in Australia, the U.S., and the U.K. by Verse Chorus Press. Um, it's primarily a biography of Steve Kilby. The book also traced the evolution of the band from his perspective. And this was not an official band project in any way, but Kilby, Copes, and various friends and family members did kind of participate in the research. So on November 27, 2009, the church released another EP called Operetta. The title track was taken from um, United, uh, I'm sorry, Untitled Number 23. But the remaining tracks included the 34-minute improvisation Particles Matter. And uh, that was a very uh, unique track. Um, in February of 2010, the band announced they would be celebrating their 30th anniversary with an acoustic tour entitled An Intimate Space. In a unique program, the band chose one song from each of their many albums and performed them in reverse chronological order. So they would play one, one track from each album backwards, the newest being first, and work their way back. The shows also included a 28-page program, and the Dead Man's Hand EP was in the program, which included more unreleased material from Untitled 23 Sessions and some tracks specifically shaped by Powell's just for this release. The U.S. leg of the tour spanned April and May, including a performance of Under the Milky Way on KUSI News in San Diego. In October, 2nd, uh, in October, Second Motion Records re-released six early church albums in the U.S. with bonus tracks and extensive liner notes by Marty Wilson Piper, along with the Deep in the Shallows singles collection, 
And on October 27th of 2010, the church were inducted into the Australian Recording Industry Association Hall of Fame by media commentator George Negus, while young pop singer Washington performed the song The Unguarded Moment. After their acceptance speech, the church performed Under the Milky Way and tantalized. In November and December, they continued with an Australian leg of their intimate space tour. The band traveled to the U.S. once again in February of 2011 in full electric mode for their future past perfect tour, performing three albums in their entirety, Untitled 23, Priest Equals Aura, and Starfish. Sold-out dates were played in Los Angeles, San Francisco, Seattle, Chicago, Alexandria, Philadelphia, New York, Foxborough, and Atlanta. This tour was the first on which the band was augmented on stage by the Australian multi-instrumentalist Craig Wilson from the band A Streetlight Song. On April 10th, 2010, the church continued their 30th anniversary celebrations with a special show entitled A Psychedelic Symphony at the Sydney Opera House, which had been, uh, that show was a year in preparation, okay? Accompanied by conducted George Ellis and the George Ellis Symphony Orchestra, the concert was performed to a sold-out 2,000-plus capacity crowd and was recorded and filmed. A DVD and double CD were released by Unorthodox in June 2014. The band's first official live album, The Show, was also broadcast on the Australian music TV channel, Max, during October of 2011. In December 2010, they concluded their future past perfect tour with a dozen Australian dates, their show of, seven, of 17 December at the Anmore Theater in Sydney was filmed and is available to streaming online. You can see it on YouTube, I believe. Wow. In November and December 2012, the church played a major series of concerts across Australia and New Zealand together with Simple Minds, Devo, and the Models, as wow. of models, I should say, as part of the tour. They also played several A Day on the Green events with the, with the models. During this tour, they also played two intimate art, rock, and roll shows, one at the Corner Hotel in Melbourne and the other at the Factory Theater in Sydney, where each member chose four songs from the band's catalog interspersed with a selection of concert staples that they had in the past. In March of 2013, there were outright signs again of internal problems in the band when Steve Kilby issued a series of statements which indicated that he was considering leaving the church due to a dispute over royalty payments. Then later in the year, Kilby announced that Marty Wilson Piper would not be returning and had been replaced by former Powderfinger guitarist Ian Howe. Kilby explained that Wilson Piper was not available for the recording of the new album and subsequent touring and praised Hogg as a brilliant guitarist anyway. Kilby, on his Facebook page, also provided a preemptive strike by saying, if you can't dig it, I'm sorry, this is my fucking band, after all, and it has existed at times without Peter, and in the beginning without Marty. The new album, entitled Further Deeper, the church's 24th studio album, was released on October 17, 2014, recorded over a period of eight days in late 2013. Further Deeper 
was produced and engineered by Powell's, the band was critically acclaimed once again, and the band performed the album in its entirety during the further deeper tours of Australia, then headed to North America again and Europe with a guest spot and select shows at the South by Southwest Festival in Austin, Texas, and then a career-defining set on one of the prestigious Primavera Festival's main stages in Barcelona, Spain. That's a big lead. Now, in July and August and September of 2015, the band toured Australia, finishing at Splendor in the Grass Festival and then going to the U.S. again, co-headlining with the Psychedelic First uh, on most of these dates. On this tour at select headline sideshows, the band played most of Further Deeper, plus the Blur Crusade in its entirety. Upon arriving back in Australia, they headlined the Boutique Small World Festival in Sydney's Newtown neighborhood. In 2016, the band returned to the USA twice, first for a more comprehensive headline tour playing the Blur Crusade in its entirety and including an invite to the main stage with the Flaming Lips and Young Fathers at Maverick Festival in San Antonio, Texas. Then in July, they toured the U.S. again, uh, repeating the success of 2015, playing larger venues with the Psychedelic Furs. 2017 brought the recording and release of the band's 25th album called Man, Woman, Life, Death, Infinity. It was released October 6th and was preceded by two singles. The album opener, Another Century, and the fourth track, Under Sea. The band toured North America in September and October before returning home to Australia for a string of dates in November and December. Finally, on February 1st, 2020, Steve Kilby announced on Facebook that Peter Copes had departed the group and that touring member Jeffrey Kane had been promoted to full member status with guitarist Ashley Naylor also being brought into the lineup. Also in early 2020, their official webpage has them working on a new album with the working title of In the Wake of the Zeitgeist. In the Wake of the Zeitgeist. We're waiting for that. That's what we got. That's the church. 40 years, right? Well, the history. And that and it, when that album come out, I mean, the 26th album, these guys, they almost, the way, the way they're in, they almost took out album for every two years, if you look at the 40-year career. The EPs. That's not counting the EPs. Yeah, the EPs. Or, or they would redo an album, do another project. But these guys were always working, man. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're definitely one of the hardest working bands. Now, now Steve Kilby is the only original member, though. Yeah. Okay. Steve got older and left, and shit happens, you know? Yeah, yeah. And again, I just want to reiterate, the the uh, 2014 book, uh, Steve Kilby, Something Quite Peculiar, is a very good read. You should check it out. You know what's the funny? I think all the members are still alive, too. Oh, yeah. I think they are. Yeah. Yeah. But we mentioned, we mentioned uh, Roxanne Fontana earlier in the show. Richard Plug played on her latest record. Yeah. Okay. And I think she's collaborated with Marty Wilson Piper in the past. But, wow. uh, yeah, she's great, too. Um, yeah, so, you know, a, a band that, uh, you know, really didn't have a lot of hits in the States still has this humongous career. I mean, everybody should check out a few records from this band, I think. Yeah, but definitely the Under the Milky Way was the big one for me. 
when that Donnie Dark when that came out, that that song was yeah, that put the song back on the map, and and you still hear that song on the radio. I mean, and you know, a few movies still, you know. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of like a classic rock staple. So, Mike, give us a little preview for uh, in the next two weeks. We got another Australian. Oh, we got uh, the final, the final Australian band of four that we talked about in a row. The, that'll be the fourth band, the Hoodoo Gurus. Okay, kind of uh, started around the same time as the church a few years later. Um, they have an interesting history. They had some, again, some success in the States and a pretty long career. And uh, their sound changed a little bit, you know, garage rock kind of sound, and then would change a little bit over the years. They had some success in the 90s in the United States, uh, but uh, now they're back to being a little bit more underground. Um, we'll do another whole show on them. For our Australian fans. All right, my so people need to get in touch with you. How can they do this? Okay, I'm all over. You can call me on uh, Instagram, RockerMike212 on Instagram, RockerMike212 on Twitter. I'm RockerMike on CloutHub, MeWe, Truth Social, Getter, RockerMike. Uh, if you want me on Facebook, I'm probably most active there. I'm under RockoMike, RockoMike. And then uh, also the Rock Show podcast group page. Check that out. We've got things going on every day on that page. How about you, Rob? You can reach me on anything getting lumped up. And you just look up getting lumped up and you will see my email, my um, my um, Facebook, my Instagram, and Twitter. So I'm very active on all, the, on all these uh, platforms. And if you want to reach out to me, uh, you can also send me an email. Uh, uh, Rob Robert Rossi at gettinglumpedup.com, and um, I will answer you as quick as possible. Or I'll, or I'll send it to Mike because uh, Mike's a better talker than I am sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. I'm a bullshit artist. <laughs> watch it. Uh, also, go to our YouTube channel, subscribe, and uh, and like, and uh, you get notification because we're very active on YouTube. We got a bunch of other shows. Yeah, ch check out, uh, just so you know, check out Rocker Mike and Rob Presents. That's an interview yeah. show that we do. Uh, check out uh, the Son of Sam Chronicles that we do, uh, which is all about the Son of Sam murders from 19, 1970s in New York City. We have uh, uh, Son of Sam shooting survivor Carl Denaro working with us on that. That's very popular. Um, also, on the regular podcast, not YouTube, we also have uh, Conspiracy 420. You can find that. On Spotify, Pandora, Anchor FM, Spitz, you know, all that stuff. Uh, and another thing also, remember that we also do, once in a while, we do a review show on certain stuff. We have a great review show on The Pistol. We did a great review show on the Kiss, um, Kiss documentary. Right. Um, and we, we've done some pretty good review, and people seem to like it. Somebody brought a nice thing about the Tina Turner episode. I saw that. We were probably the most active people that ever done a show on Tina Turner, on Ike and Tina Turner. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I appreciated that. Thank you. I sent you that email. I think I yeah, I got it. it. I got it. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate that. You know that YouTube refused to print that comment and say that it's not part of a... Uh... I know. I couldn't find it on there, but they did that person email you directly or did it... No, YouTube emailed that just got pulled up and I'm, I was trying to put it up there, but... Wouldn't, it won't go up. I know. I only saw it on the notification, not the not the actual comments. They mess with us, Mike. Eh, we'll pass that. <laughs>
We're getting bigger and bigger. Yeah, that's it. So everybody remember, don't get drunk. Get lumped up. Lumped up, and we'll see you in two weeks. Have a good one. Take care, people. Get lumped up tonight Listen to Rob Ross and Young Rock of mine On the only podcast that I'll hear They won't make me want to rip off my ears The Rock Show The Rock Show The Rock Show The Rock Show